You're listening to The Nerve, an English and arts podcast from SETU. I'm your host, Dr. Jenny O'Connor. To round off this semester series, I'm excited to welcome two local legends who've been very important in the arts community in Waterford. Andy Kelly, a passionate archivist, cinema projectionist and collector, has had a TG Cahar documentary made about him and has done vital work in retaining access to film and photography that documents the history of Waterford over the past several decades. Andy was a projectionist for 20 years and was one of the founders of Waterford Cine Club, which screened films in Waterford that attendees had made themselves. Frank Ryan is the main member of Waterford Film for All, a film society that has had many guises and homes, but that currently screens films at Garter Lane Arts Centre in Waterford. So today we'll chat about the changing art scene in the southeast. So a very warm welcome to you both. Um, thanks a million for joining me. It's great. And Andy, I was just wondering if I could start with you because um, I watched your documentary, which was really great, actually. It's a very, we were talking about it a minute ago, very concise 25 minute documentary. Um, but In it, it says that you kind of got into collecting by accident. So can you tell us a little bit about what kicked it all off for you? Well, collecting the still photographs, I I served my time as a carpenter. And um, in the course of doing a job in Dungarvan, came across stuff that was about to be dumped and recognised some photographic equipment. The family had been into photographs. And I asked what was happening this, and he said, it's going to the dump. And I said, you can't dump that. And he was amazed that I recognised, it was an old flatbed laser mainly, and but among that collection was a box of glass negatives taken in Nungarvan around 1900. And that started me. I had been into photography for years before that, but that's what started me into collecting old photographs. And that was about 1964, 65. Wow. And so were you kind of interested then in in whenever somebody was throwing stuff out that you would kind of swoop in and see were there any little gems there? Well, I suppose initially then I went back looking at old family photographs and and, uh, I had, this is pre-digital, I had um, uh, a copying stand in a dark room under the stairs at home and uh, I used to copy stuff. And then I started copying stuff for uh, the Dungarvan Museum originally, and then for people like Julian Walton and others like that, and then got involved with a number of other um, historians from uh, from around the country, generally, actually, as far as Dublin, and supplying them with old photographs for publications from the probably from the mid-80s, I suppose, yeah. And did you keep doing your carpentry work then, or did you stop oh, yeah. doing it? Oh, yeah, just a hobby, just a hobby to me, you know. Right, that's amazing, isn't it? And and can you tell us a little bit about what's in the collection at the moment? Well, I have up to 40,000 um, photographs, items uh, of um, photographs going back to the 1850s, collections that I would have collected from various sources. And then as um, people got to know that I was collecting, they started offering me stuff and that and offering me cameras as well. So I have a collection of old cameras as well, going back to the 1880s. And where do you keep it all? Well, at the moment, it was hidden up in the attic and what got it all together was it was hidden up in the attic and it was hidden in tops of wardrobes and things like that. And my daughter, who was a manager with a, a, a retail shop in Waterford, was off for COVID 
and she's uh, a fanatic for cleaning. <sighs> so she started cleaning from the top of the house down and said, out of here, all this stuff out of here, this rubbish out of here, she said. So I <laughs> converted the, an old office of my business, because I'm retired, uh, into a, what I call my private museum which I think some of them might have been shown on the TG card. As, um, it was, yeah. yeah. And did you receive any kind of funding to help you do that then? No. No? No, it's been a hobby, like. That's hobby. I, I, I've um, approached, well, I better not say too much, but I've approached people for funding, but I get kind of the fob off and you have to go through so many hoops to get funding, I just... Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. a lot of form filling and, and things like yeah. that. It's a shame, though, isn't it? Because mm. it's such an important thing that you're doing. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm in the process of, of uh, I suppose, finding locations for it. Uh, coming up on the 15th of July, I'm donating quite a number of, um, about 400 photographs of the Grand Canal Company barges and about 50 minutes of... 16 millimeter both colour and black and white uh, film of the Grand Canal barges operating and I'm giving them to um, a museum down in Gorsebridge called the Goodley Barrow because it's the only place that's uh, the uh, the canal the Grand Canal company or the canal systems have been uh, exhibited if you like so we've arranged that it's gone up and uh, the 15th of July in Gorsbridge. That's good. It's nice to know that the, they'll have a, a good home, isn't it? Mm. Um, and so you were continually making movies back then yourself and playing with cameras and projectors and all of that. You were fascinated by all of it. In the in the documentary, I was kind of going, technically speaking, I'm not really too fantastic. And I, you were talking about all sorts of things that I really didn't understand. But <laughs> um, you were making lots of movies. And would you have a favourite? I mean, how many films have you made? And have you got a favourite one? Well, I wouldn't have made that many. We made a number. I made them with the kids, uh, our own kids at home. And then I documentary type things, of one with hang gliding and motorcycle trials and then other ones on the train. I think on the probably the second last train that went from Waterford to Balnacorty. So we got on that with the kids. And... Uh, but stuff like that. But I mean, I, I was still, even though I'd done some in, eight, that was done in 8mm. And um, I'd done one on the um, the Flacule in Ennis, and which won an award in Dublin. But that was a technical award because at the time, uh, direct sound cameras had, had come into being. And um, they were frowned on by the series filmmakers because you couldn't edit them because the sound the, the f picture had to pause in the gate to project to the screen but it had to run smoothly through the sound head which meant the sound head then was 18 frames of picture ahead of the the sound was ahead of the picture so if you cut the sound you lost the picture if you cut the picture you lost the sound so I had a friend in Wales who was an electronic engineer and he built a recorder for me that was able to lift the sound off the film on a pulse system and I could edit the film then according to the number of pulses and take out clip, clips and put in clips and then run the sound back over the whole lot. And that was the first, that was the um, 
a, a film, 1976, I think, I made it, which is the Flacule uh, in Ennis. And that got an award, a technical award, for uh, being able to edit direct sound film. Wow. I mean, there's so much ingenuity that went on. It's incredible. <laughs> well, you'd have to do, we were involved again to, with a local radio guy here in town, Rick Whelan, in a project to make a film about the famine, which we called Black 47 at the time. Yeah. And that entailed um, all sorts of things, like making tracking systems go across a ploughed field, a cornfield, to track the camera across. Also, we built um, a crane that could go about 15 feet up in the air and tow behind the car for tracking scenes along a beach. And that, but that was part of the fun of it as well as designing and making um, the equipment that we needed to get the shot we wanted. Yeah, and the, your skills as a carpenter, I'm sure, came into <laughs> came into good use there. Um, and it, it's brilliant. What's great about the documentary, I think, is how you get to see all the clips of these films as well. You know, I love the one that you had of uh, the two boys on the railway track, and you know, one of them gets stuck there, and the yeah. train is coming. You know, <laughs> it's a, it, it's really sweet, isn't it? Yeah, that, that was. Um, Two boys, the eldest two boys, um, James and John. I don't know, they're in their fifties now. But that was one. It was at the time that the Incredible Hulk was going on on television, and that's what it's all about. That if he if he couldn't get him out, he was going to turn into the Hulk and stop the train. I know it's a lovely ending. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and so there must have been when you started the Cine Club. There must have been a lot of amateur filmmakers in Waterford at the time to make that viable, was it? How many times, like, how often would you meet? I, we, oh, I can't remember now. It was probably once a week or maybe, yeah, we'd meet once a week. And um, again, it was Eddie O'Keefe. Eddie was a teacher on the Ursland Convent and he was very forward-thinking that even... In, I remember the Irish Times came down and done an article on Eddie about... Because in the 80s... 70s and 80s we were in a uh, recession at the time and kids our, my own kids were going to school at the time and the attitude was what's the point in doing a leaving because there's no jobs to go there and I used to argue that the kids should be encouraged to have a hobby but Eddie took it a stage further because in the Earthland Convent here in Warford he had a radio system set up through the intercom in the school. He had a film club and a photographic club. And, and he also set up uh, an old, he got some old black and white um, TV cameras, TV video cameras, and set up a, a, his own local internal television, which he actually um, used to use them for read their own news on television within the school. Now, the Irish Times came down and, and recorded that. And Eddie actually um, was involved in the cine club with us as well, like, as he was into into that. But he moved into video then. And when, when video came in and I didn't have the comforting sound of a an 8mm camera going on my ear, I couldn't handle that. VHS video because I remember one time I used it and the camera ended up pointed to the ground recording nothing more than it did because you wouldn't know when it was off whereas you had the comfort of the sound of the uh, camera running in your ear when you had it up against your face up against your eye and you knew when it was on and you knew when it was off Wow <laughs> Yeah and so you kind of did you lose the love of it then? 
I lost interest in, in filmmaking at that stage and I went back to what I was at always, which was still photography. Right. Wow. Um, I suppose, Frank, you know, that cine club where people would come along with their own movies <laughs> is a little bit different to the way that the film club works in, in Watford now, isn't it? Um, what about what was it like when you got involved? So, you know, I don't want you to have to reveal your age or anything to the <laughs> audience, but give us a sense. OK, let's say it's 30 years back and it, it would have been that's where I would have uh, met Andy. And this was where you would have had a 16 millimetre projector, which meant that when you wanted to put on a film, um, you had your screen, your sound system, you had a projector. So that projector was a 16 millimetre projector. So it could either be one projector on its own or uh, two together and more often not two together. Whereas you, the reel would last, Andy you now will correct me on this, 20 minutes, mm. I think. Yeah. Mm. So the reel would last 20 minutes. So you had to change over every 20 minutes. So there was the art of the projectionist would the actual synchronise that changeover between the two reels. And I mean, I think you'd even still, I don't think you'd see it probably anymore, but on an older film, you might see the little scroll up the top right hand corner, which is the indicator, I think, for the changeover. It's best I remember anyway, uh, memory being faulty and all. But um, that was where I would have started with it, you know. I'm sure I was just going down to the film club, which was in the Granville Hotel at that time. Or else it was actually the Mount Sinai Clubhouse. I can't remember. I think actually Mount Sinai might have been before the Granville Hotel. Mm. And that's the, with the nature. And I suppose it is to this day. Remember, this was like at a time when art centres were few and far between. The cinemas had their own thing and they they were obviously hugely popular at that time, you know. And um, so film clubs then were that kind of little niche programming that your cinemas couldn't afford probably to put on. Mm. You know, that technically was going to be quite difficult to just put on that one screening or something. So that's where the film clubs would have come around. And I can remember um, an interview with Michael DeWire, the former, he would have um, been the film reviewer with, I think, Sunday Tribune, and then he was Irish Times. But he was in, he was actually just an enthusiast down in Tralee. And I think in an interview he said like that 800 members in the 70s. 800. Wow. Now, this was at the time, like before video. And I'd say when video came on in the 80s, people had access then mm. to, you know, video fi films that they read about in the Sunday papers. They could potentially then go down to their local video shop and be able to take them out to view. Now, I would say video had a huge impact on film societies and that I'd say like you had a probably, you know, kind of a certain core of your audience who wanted to see particular films. Others then just, I'd say, wanted the cinema experience and just maybe even they didn't have a cinema in their own town, you know. Now, at the moment, like around Ireland, Waterford Film for All, formerly Waterford Film Society, um, is part of Access Cinema, who were formerly Federation of Irish Film Societies. And that's just an umbrella body to help coordinate Pro, help with pro, programming, the transport, the logistical side of film distribution. So they're just a small group of four people and best I remember now in Dublin and they coordinate for all the societies. So at the moment you have two tiers within that system. Um, you have the digital level, which is what we have now in Garter Lane and which all the commercial cinemas will have. And then you have some of the societies are on uh, DVD, Blu-ray. Mm. And there's about 70 of those societies around the country. Wow, still. Yeah, yeah, and it just shows you that, I mean, they're potentially, 
Um, you know, like that a small town, if they have a decent hall, you know, and they could potentially have a sound system, they could already have a screen in situ, there could be a video projector there. So it does make access to it easier. Like having, trying to work with film projectors, like the projectors themselves were rare enough, even when I got involved, like they were starting to become, they weren't being in production, you were relying on older. But the brilliant thing about that technology is that technology lasted for 100 years, maybe. Yeah. You know, in that it was literally the film ran through a projector and this bulb then threw that image off the frame up onto a screen and then you coordinated that with the sound. And like, I mean, it was a brilliant system to last so long as it did. Mm. And then, of course, then we um, in the Film Society, you had those huge transitions then that took place then, you know, so 16 millimetre as a, you're reliant on somebody making a 16 millimetre copy, which is like it was 35 millimetre Okay, I know we talk about films these days now. I mean, poor John Borman was arguing there that we should no longer call them films because now I think maybe it's only Irish people call them films anyway. But With a U. Yeah, films. <laughs> and um, so uh, John was saying, like, sure, they're not films anymore. They're digital, mm. you know, so that we have to come up with a new term, you know. But the film like uh, The Fablemans, uh, Licorice Pizza, they were shot on film. Tarantino would do the same as well, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood film, 35 millimetre. So 35 millimetre, 16 millimetres, half that, so the image is not as good. And then 8 mil again would be a different for, you know, a less dense image that you would have, like to project it up. So we were at 16 millimetre. Then we had to transition then over to, um, we were on 35 millimetre actually for a while then. We, um, there was a chap in Cartelaine called Mike Collins who got a projector from one of the cinemas in Tramore that was closing down. And I think that projector that is in Cartelaine now, the 35mm, is about in the, from the 1950s, I oh. think. And again, that is working away. You know, like that still could just project films in the morning, you know, because it is just quite... I suppose it's like a good car or something like that. They're simple enough and they'll stay going, you know, and all yeah. they need is just replacement parts and stuff. And talk to me about, both of you might talk to me about kind of venues and finding venues for things because I remember when I came down to Waterford first going to the film club, like uh, in Garter Lane at the time and realising fairly quickly, God, I should have brought my blanket and my cushion just like everybody else brought theirs <laughs> because back then, you know, it wasn't the venue that it is now. Um, and it didn't seem to matter, though. They, like the, the audiences were there. They would come anyway. They'd come with their hot water bottles or whatever they needed to come with. Um, but there were bums on seats. So, you know, you were saying the Granville there, Frank. So like what we because I'm just full disclosure, I'm on the committee with you, but you do all the work. But we've been Thank in you, loads. Jenny, of, <laughs> we've been in loads of venues. And so the Granville was the first one. And then, like, there's been so many different venues. They all have their pluses and minuses, don't they? Well, the actual Film Society was restarted by Eddie O'Keefe. Uh, oh, really? And myself. Okay, yeah. In the mid-70s. Mm. There had been a Film Society before that, and uh, I think Michael Kavanagh was the projectionist there, the part of Kavanagh's electricals. Uh, so Eddie O'Keefe... And myself got together and we decided that we would um, 
restart the film society and to, where it started first was in the teacher centre which was one of those um, Georgian buildings across from the Theatre Royal. Oh, That's right. where we started. That was and a nice venue probably, was it? Well, it was small enough, but the numbers were small at the time. But the funny part about it was that the projector I had at the time was an old bell and howl and you'd hear it a quarter of a mile away. Like. <laughs> so we had to build a soundproof booth within the place that I could project from. Uh, so I was locked into this booth with a glass front on and projected and threw that onto the screen so, t- so that they could hear what was going on out in the audience. And um, we went into which at the time was called the Municipal Theatre in Warford as well. I think where the Warford home is now. And um, that was a, a massive big theatre for the number of people we'd have in there. And I remember, I remember one night having a four-reel film which was a South American dub, uh, subtitled film. And in the darkness, because I just changed the, the reels on the projector in total darkness without switching on the lights. But I accidentally put on reel three oh, yeah. after reel one. And Dave Smith was involved at the time. And I called Dave over and I said, Dave, I'm after making a mistake. I put on three instead of number two. He said, don't worry about it, nobody notices. (laughs) (laughs) Because especially if it's an art house movie or something, you know, a little bit different, maybe they thought it was all part of the plan. Do you remember what any what those titles were or any of the first movies that you put on? Oh, jeez, I can't remember. I mean, most of the stuff we would have had that time would all have been uh, foreign films with subtitles on them. That was the big thing about it was that you, you could see stuff in the film society that you would not get uh, in in the, the, the normal commercial cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, I just can't remember. But there'd be some like I've actually some of the ones that I, off the top of my head I can't think of them now. But a lot of the films that were memorable as far as I was concerned. I went back later and got them on DVDs so I could watch them again and have a stack of them at home. But I just can't think of them. Yeah. I, I it's hard to remember. We would have seen... One of my favourites uh, would have been Robert Flaherty's stuff, like Nanook of North and Moon of the South Seas and Man of Arn. Yeah. We had Man of Arn there, I remember, at one stage. And Battleship Potemkin was another one that we, we had, would have had that I remember. Wow, yeah, that's brilliant. They're real classics. Yeah. Um, and I remember going to see Metropolis in Garter Lane as well, mm. one stage, much later, you know, when there was a new mm. print of it out, out or whatever. But remember those venues, Frank, there was, so where did, so so Waterford Film for All has been in loads of different venues. Yeah, like we were in the large room in City Hall, which I think was the, where the Municipal Theatre was. Mm. So, like, I mean, that, as people would know it from concerts and that, is this beautiful venue, like big wooden floor on it. And um, we just you just have to go in there and set up the projector, the screen, rig up the sound. And oh my God, it was like just so easy now, like when you can just press a button. Mm-hmm. Whereas at that time, like you could spend like almost up to half an hour to 45 minutes setting up. Then you have to break up that. So it's like a band setting up today, I suppose, almost, you know. Mm. Um, and not so, getting paid. Um, <laughs> hopefully just breaking even which is uh, always the aim yeah the hand to mouth existence of film societies of course you know but it's like I remember Mount Sinai but my mother like my late mother was talking about this like that she went to probably the original film society in the 50s and she said like it was 
oh, Citizen Kane or something that they were watching at that time. You know, now God knows where, Osher, you know, all those questions you should have asked, you know, that, uh, well, where was that venue, you know? But I can remember the Mount Sinai Clubhouse. We were in the Granville. We were um, City Hall, you know, the large room. Then we're in Garter Lane. Then Garter Lane closed for renovations. So we went to the Odeon down in Railway Square. Um, so then... We were here. In, oh my God, I'm forgetting that, Jimmy. Yeah, in, in WIT as was. Yeah, and um, I, yeah, the venue was really good. And I think th- what was really interesting was that we, we got a different audience out here because people from who lived around would come down. And unfortunately, it was the uh, issues with the building um, and the plop of uh, rainwater coming down through the ceiling. I think oh, yeah. it stopped us. I think that's what... It, <laughs> <laughs> and then we were back in Gartelaine then, so where we've been. But to be honest, we would put on a film in collaboration with anyone, you know, and you'd assist people as well. And it is amazing, actually, just when you talk about the venues and the, the home comforts that you might or may or may not have. And that somebody was talking about, um, you know, that they're looking at setting up um, a film club um, near Waterford. And I'm um, sure they asked us down then to for a little bit of advice. And just, I was kind of saying the venue is quite nice and everything. And they were saying, you know, but you're like, ah, people, you know, could bring down, a, we could ask them to bring a blanket or a cushion. They're worried about the quality of their seats, you know. And then they said, sure, they'd go down to St. Luke's, that uh, deconsecrated church in Cork, to a gig. And it's a cold church, no heating. And of course, what do they do? They make a virtue of it and they say, bring your hot water bottle, bring your blanket as part of the experience. And I mean, I think that's what film societies have, that kind of, you know, unique quality that you put up with, whether it's the (laughs) rain plopping down (laughs) and have that bucket of water just strategically placed or else it's bring your blanket, you know. Although I still remember the kids from, um, it was the students came down from uh, Camp Hill Community in Callan. And I suspect there's a certain kind of air of uh, roughing it up there, you know. So they used to come down and they had no qualms about lying out on the concrete, the you know the old stage set up in Gartelaine, uh, just and they'd put their little rucksack at the back of their head and they'd lie out watching the film. Mm-hmm. These were kind of like people of student age. Tell that to the students these <laughs> days, Jenny. <laughs> uh, I know, yeah. I don't think you'd get much take up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you think about you know the way things have gone now as well with streaming? I mean, it makes it in one way. You would imagine that people can get whatever they want at home now. They still come, though, don't they? It's interesting. I mean, what I like, it is interesting, like um, streamers are now producing their own content. So you've got Apple, you've got Disney, you've got um, Prime. Netflix. Netflix. Oh, yeah, that one. The little niche <laughs> Forgot one. Forgot about yeah. that one. Yeah, that one. Um, movie, which would be the Artels one. You know, that streaming platform. So I think what happens is that, and I think the streamers are just, where they're impacting on the industry now is that they are literally producing film for their own platform and then they're giving it kind of a cursory cinema release to qualify, I think, for the awards. Mm-hmm. And then it's back behind the paywall again. And I think that's the problem with the streaming platforms. At the moment, they're awash with cash. Um, I was talking to somebody who worked on um, Kate McCullough, um, who's cinematographer for on Colleen Kuhn. And she was down in Gartelaine speaking about Arakt. Um, when she did cinematography on it and she just said like a friend of hers was working in Troy Studios in Limerick on an Apple production and she said like my god the money that they were literally they were building it's whatever their big uh, space soap opera thing is and they built all these sets and um, next thing six months later reshoots (gasps) rebuilt 
brand new sets. They didn't like the look of what they had. And it just, you know, like that's, it's kind of like megabucks, you know, like that they can do that. But where I'd have an issue from, you know, a film fan's point of view is that it's this paywall thing in that, say, for example, we had um, a film, an Iranian film, A Hero, and there was a technical issue in Garter Lane that night. So this was a digital copy and digital can have problems too, but it was actually more the sound system in Garter Lane. There was an issue, a uh, connection issue or something like that. So it was just more something that just a day or whatever it would be repaired, up and running again. We tried to rescreen that film. It was outside the screening window that Amazon had imposed on the film. Now, Amazon are more, this is Prime now would be their platform. They're more generous in that I think their window is six to eight weeks. And yet Netflix, literally, it might get released in Dublin. That's it. Mm-hmm. We won't get access to it. So we had the Disney one, like Coda wins the best picture uh, 2022. We can't get that. You know, so like that, I mean, we're at the moment now looking at putting on um, a short series of the Oscar related ones, like, you know, every everything, everywhere, all, <laughs> all at, at once. once. Um <laughs> The Fablemans and Tar, and I'm just hoping now Tar is outside the streaming. Everything is definitely that's Amazon, and um, the Fablemans I think is available as well. But like it could be like that, Amazon might just say, "We've given it a run in the cinemas again. We're back into the platform because it, they want viewers for the platform, mm. not necessarily bums on seats." Yeah. You know that their money is made on subscriptions, but that is the worry I have with the streamers that. They have this attitude of its paywall and that's it. Whereas we're, we'd be looking at it from, we want to see it on a big screen with a lovely sound system. Now, we had uh, Water Film for All. We were trying to, looking at maybe running a strand of film document, or sorry, music documentaries. And we had the Sinead O'Connor documentary, Nothing Appears. We had um, the David Bowie documentary, um, the name of which does escape me now. I know, it has escaped me too. Yeah. I was there. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know yourself, like to see that film on the big screen with the sound system that's there. I don't know how you could replicate that at home. You couldn't. I don't think that that's one of those films, you know, film club films, because I yeah. often talk about this with a friend of mine that we go, um, you know, together very often. But, you know, there are certain films that you probably wouldn't watch at home or you'd, you'd pause it to take a phone call or to go and cup, make a cup of tea and, and you mightn't come back to it. And that was one of those perfect examples, mm-hmm. that David Bowie one. Whose name, which name, or the name of which I can't Moon Age Daydream. That's the, oh, thank God. <laughs> you can edit out that bit, Jenny. And, you know, you're talking about budgets there as well, Frank. Um, I was just wondering, Andy, when you were talking about Black 47, you know, you definitely didn't have the budget that uh, that uh, these <laughs> movies, these bigger streaming movies would have. So, did I mean, that must have constrained you in, in one way and probably was a good incentive in another way to get really creative, was it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. We didn't even consider budget. It was never even mentioned, I don't think. The word budget was never mentioned in it. We just, uh, we used to have a meeting in my house midweek before we do our weekend shooting and decide what we were going to do on, on, on the day and whatever needed to be acquired for that day. I remember we'd done a, a, we'd done a, a kind of a Cayley scene up in the Cumber Mountains and half of the crowd that came to that Cayley just saw we we had put up sort of uh, Rick had organised a bus from Waterford to go up there with a number of people which would be some of the main actors in it 
So to give them directions to go up there, we made up signs and put them on the road in various places with an arrow pointing film this way. Which enters on a Sunday morning about 12 o'clock, and people come from Mass, saw the signs come from Mass, and they just followed the signs to see what was the film. And we ended up with a big crowd, which we needed. So it was just that's the way it was done. Wow. And so everybody on it was just doing it for free and they were just doing it because they were interested. Yeah, yeah. Everyone. And I mean, we had we had some of the best actors in the town. And even, even, all the names will escape me now. Um, oh, Jesus, he just said recently. Oh, Frank Ogden. Uh, Frank Ogden was in it, yeah. yeah. He was one of the main, um, Connor Halpin. Uh, um, well, Des Manahan was in it as well. Oh, right. Yeah. He was in it, and we filmed actually in in the castle out in the island. That's where Des was was filmed. And I, again, I think that was Rick's influence there that he was able to use his power from the radio. Yeah. And a lot of the, the things, like the buses to get the people out, was um, in what they got in return was a, a plug on the radio. So there was no money change hands. <laughs> That's fantastic, isn't yeah. it? It's great. The old barter system. Yeah. And I, I loved um, in the documentary as well where it showed you setting fire to the roof of a thatched cottage. I thought, wow, yeah. they, were well, really, uh, they weren't pulling any punches there. That, that thatched cottage was built on the chassis of a caravan so we could take it to different locations. And it was only part of a cable, part of the roof and front. There was no side or back to it. Really? <laughs> and it's so well done. It's brilliant. Yeah. And actually, the other thing, we, we had um, we had the, the British military. If you see, if you look at it, I know it's shown in the documentary, but the guns, well, I made the guns for that. They made it, actually, they're made out of part of the Terminus Street, the timber that came up with the Terminus Street Road, the bridge, because that was old um, Russian Redwood, Rika Redwood, and uh, I still have a few of them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that re- I, it is absolutely incredible. It really is. Um, um, but at the time, too, as well, we got access to the Abbey, uh, costumes from the Abbey, but we never used it because I, way back at that time, I knew Lila Doolan and she was involved in the, uh, in the college in Rat Mines and I used to go up and project their end of year because that time they, 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 they would do their um, filmmaking in 8mm. This is before, even before video. And I used to go up to Rat Mines at the end of the year and to project for their end of year um, presentation. Yeah, because of that, then I got to know Leela and I brought Rick up to meet her one time and she told us if we needed costumes for her, uh, she'd get access to the Abbey. But again, like I say, we had our own costume maker here in, I can't think what her name is now at the moment, but she used to make all the costumes. Uh, and the, the, the old hood cloak that the girl is wearing in it um, was replicated from the one that I have at home which is my great-great-grandmother's cloak and that's that's how we how we organised the stuff and that's how we got it. And is it um, is it a full-length film? Well, there's 45 minutes of it but it finished it I don't know it, um, what happened there was that was a time when the radio stations WLR had to close down for a period of time to get opened back up as an official registered station. And the sound for the film was supposed to be done 
in the radio studio at that time. But whatever happened, I don't know. It never went ahead. And uh, it, uh, it was all on 8mm. But a couple of years ago, a number of years ago, now, probably about four or five years ago, I got it digitised by a, a guy in Galway that does all the work for the IFI. And it's up to high broadcast quality. Digital now. But I don't know whether it'll ever go together. Yeah, and is it just living in your collection now, Andy? Or? That's it, I suppose, yeah. it's it's um, There's about 45 minutes of it. It would have probably run the hour, like, by the time it would have been finalised. But I had I had rough, rough edit of about 45 minutes. Uh, it's, a bit of a, it's a complicated kind of film because there was actually four independent stories running through it between the story of the famine itself, the story of the uh, Frank Auckland and who was the, the, the landlord's agent in it, and then there was the love story between the policeman and the, the RAC man and the, and the girl, who, again, the names just won't come to me now at the moment. But there was a number of different stories and different things in it, and we filmed all over the county places and down into South Kilkenny for locations and. So you're on par with uh, uh, Barry Lyndon. Yeah. <laughs> For ambition, definitely, anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Just what I'd be interested about is like how about, you know, the way I'm, you'd hear Martin Scorsese talking about, you know, 60% of silent movies are gone. You know, that they'll never be recovered. Conservation of film. See, the problem with film is that, like, I've, I have a number of about 8,000 feet of 16 millimetre film that was taken by uh, Robert Shortall. Robert Shortall lived in Gladstone Street with his aunt. She ran the post office there. And he was a projectionist in the Coliseum. He was from New Ross. Uh, had started out his life projecting in New Ross and then he went to Wexford and then eventually came back to the Coliseum in Waterford. Which was a cinema there, wasn't it? <coughs> Which was a cinema, yeah. Mm-hmm. And But his, his passion was photography and filmmaking. And um, he, 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 like he made all these films. And his interests were the trains, shipping, and the canal barges. And he went all over the country. He actually went abroad, and he'd go on steamers. He went to, uh, he would have gone to Russia, gone to Petersburg, Saint Petersburg. He went to Liverpool. He went to um, Finland, I think, and uh, Helsinki, and places like that on the steamers and filmed on them. And uh, in the, oh, when was it? In the early parts of the, the 90s, in the 80s, 90s, I was working with, with Frank, uh, with, um, sorry, Bill Irish. Bill was a lecturer here in the college and Bill was writing a history of shipbuilding in Waterford and uh, he brought me on board with him for the photographic side of it. And we used to be up and down to Robert Shortall's brother Paddy was alive at the time in, in Wexford and um, we used to be borrowing photographs off of him at the time and copying them and then returning the photographs to him and eventually in about 20, 2008 I think it was that he, Paddy Shortall offered the whole collection to us which included about 8,000 feet of 16mm film and uh, because he said there was no, no one in the family interested and we were the only people that showed an interest in it now, I've got all that film digitised and it's waiting. The COVID came in the meantime. It's, I'm waiting to, to get it sent up to the IFI in Dublin because old 
film. She suffers from a thing they called vinegar syndrome, which is when the emulsions begin to deteriorate, you get this strong smell of vinegar off it and it will deteriorate. But I at least have got it digitised and saved. Now, what they can do um, with the, with the, to prevent it deteriorating more, it needs to probably go into a temperature-controlled uh, uh, location, which... Two things held that up at the moment. One was that they were moving from Temple Bar out to Minute to the University of Minute for a state-of-the-art storage facility there. That was number one. And number two was COVID came in in the meantime and we couldn't get it up there. So it's waiting to go up there. Mm, so fingers crossed that it's mm. still in good shape. And just to see, get access to that, Andy. You know, say, I mean, um, I was at, the, um, just before Christmas, the Water Film Centre had the idea of putting on Barry Lyndon, which was the last big Hollywood production that would have taken place, which was in the 70s, I think. Mm-hmm. So that, that yeah, it was the 50th anniversary. So it was um, on the screen, but they were talking to local people who had worked on that. And it was amazing to hear all those memories that people had of, I was talking to Stanley this and Stanley that. Yeah. And the stories were brilliant. But really, I think nearly everybody in the audience either had worked on it or knew somebody in the family who had worked and just was a treasure trove of like memory that was there and just to capture some of that, you know, before it all goes, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I'd love to see some of those those old clips on a big screen again, you know, mm-hmm. which would be brilliant to see. It would be. Yeah. And, you know, you'd have, when I saw the response to the Stanley Kubrick one, I know it's a big Hollywood production and it must have been huge excitement at that time. But it was just when you'd hear people talking about it, Everybody, like literally, if you talk to anybody in the audience at the, at the interval of the film, um, I spoke to Dr. Bulbulia and I don't know him, but just we were just making conversation. And I said, oh, did you have a connection to the film? Oh, I was the medic on the film in that they needed a medic, obviously. Mm. And then next thing he said, um, Stanley Kubrick's daughter, one of the daughters got sick. And he said I had to go out to the house. So because I'd asked him had he met uh, Stanley Kubrick and he said oh yeah he was a really nice man you know? <laughs> wow and Dr. Bulbulia used to be the doctor here on campus uh, so on. now I'm only two steps away from Stanley Kubrick <laughs> <laughs> See it pays to ask Yeah because there's another thing now actually I'm involved in again for uh, um, the making of Moby Dick in 1954 in Yorl um, there's a Moby Dick festival coming up I just got a phone call this morning about it coming up on the 3rd of June and I'll have a photographic exhibition of the making of Moby Dick for that. I had been doing it for a number of years up until I think it's 2018 was the last year because of COVID, but I, I'm back online again. But uh, another young man, Mike Hackett and myself, have been doing the rounds of West Warford and East Cork recently, where Mike, who is a part of the film, he was as a, as a 10-year-old child had a part in the film and we've been doing the rounds uh, with Dungarvan, Aldmore, Clashmore, Killer, Gortru um, and Yoel all up since December. He was giving talk about his memories of the film and I've given the photographic display as well. So Isn't that's another, strange? yeah, that's the, the, the Moby Dick was the making of Yoel at the time. It was even probably greater than Barry Lyndon. Mm. For you all, because so we we have we have photographs going back to the actual planning of it and 
uh, and the construction of the sets and then the, all the extras in it. And it was also filmed then in Fishguard as well. The sea scenes were filmed off Fishguard and, and um, I have a collection of photographs from, from there as well. Wow, it's amazing. Well, look, I feel like we could keep talking all day long, but we probably need to stop at some point. Um, so I just want to say a huge thanks to the two of you for joining me um, and for talking about just the importance of, of what you're doing. Like you really can sense how important it is when we're chatting about it here. So if listeners would like to find out a little bit more about Andy, you can watch Sconon Walia Andy which is my terrible Irish pronunciation, which I presume pr- translates to Andy's home videos. Uh, it's on the TG Cahar website now and it's really fantastic. It's like all the films that we've been talking about that he's been involved in are there and so many fabulous photographs as well. Um, and you can find out more about Waterford Film for All by finding them on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or by searching the film section in Garter Lane Arts Centre website as well. So best of luck to both of you and just thanks a million for joining me. Thanks, thanks Jenny, thank you. for hosting us. Thank you.